It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrove, and with my co-host, David Feldman. Welcome back, David. We missed you last week. Thank you. It's great to be back. And the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. We got a good reaction to our new report, The Incommunicados. So we want to hear your stories where officials in government at whatever levels or corporate flacks don't return your call, don't respond to you. And if you want a little detail on the report and how to get it, go to incommunicadoswatch.org. Very good. And we've got a great show today. On today's show, our guest for the whole hour will be Jennifer Vanderbess. We're going to talk to her about her new book, Wonder Drug, The Secret History of Thalidomide in America and Its Hidden Victims. Thalidomide never made it on the market in the U.S. No one could prove the drug was safe. No one could definitively say what the drug did. And by the time thalidomide landed at the FDA for approval, whistleblowers, journalists, doctors, and patients in Germany, Australia, and the U.K. were sounding the alarm about some shocking side effects. Big Pharma tried to bully their way through the FDA approval process and failed. But they hadn't waited for that official green light without FDA approval, without proof that the drug was effective or safe, without telling patients what they were taking. Thousands of doctors across the country handed out thalidomide like it was vitamins or aspirin. We'll talk to Ms. Vanderbess about how the medical establishment put the American public at risk and what's protecting us from the next dangerous wonder drug. As always, we'll check in with our tireless corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber, but first, thalidomide was a wonder drug, as in, I wonder what it does. I wonder if it's safe. I wonder whether it has anything to do with my lingering nerve pain or my child's birth defects. David? Jennifer Vanderbess is an award-winning novelist, journalist, and screenwriter. Her latest book is Wonder Drug, The Secret History of Thalidomide in America and Its Hidden Victims. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Jennifer Vanderbess. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Welcome indeed, Jennifer. For our listeners, this is a staggering book of heroics, corporate greed, government surrender, got the whole package. And I think the best way to frame it, Jennifer, is to read from your flap copy of your book, which frames the thesis of your book, and then we can go into the details. So if you'll indulge me, listeners, it's only a minute or two read. Quote, in 1959, a Cincinnati pharmaceutical firm, the William S. Merrill Company, quietly began distributing samples of an exciting new wonder drug already popular around the world. Touted as a sedative without risks, thalidomide was handed out freely under the guise of clinical trials by doctors who believed that approval by the Food and Drug Administration was imminent. But in 1960, when the application for thalidomide landed on the desk, a Food and Drug Administrator medical reviewer, Frances Kelsey, she quickly grew suspicious. When she learned that the drug was causing severe birth abnormalities abroad, she and a team of dedicated doctors, parents, and journalists fought tirelessly to block its authorization in the U.S. and stop its sale around the world. Jennifer Vanderbess set out to write about this FDA success story, only to discover a sinister truth that had been buried for decades. For more than five years, several American pharmaceutical firms had distributed unmarked thalidomide sample pills in shoddy clinical trials, reaching tens of thousands of unwitting patients 
including hundreds of pregnant women. As Vanderbess examined government and corporate archives, probed court records, and interviewed hundreds of key players, she unhearsed an even more stunning discovery. Scores of Americans had likely been harmed by the drug, deceived by the pharmaceutical firms, betrayed by doctors, and ignored by the government. Most of these Americans had spent their lives unaware that thalidomide had caused their birth defects, end quote. So that's the framework, Jennifer. Tell us first how you got interested in this story. You're a novelist and as well as a journalist. How'd you get interested in the story? Well, I like a good story of a woman fighting against Oz and a very smart woman in a man's world. And I was very entranced by the story of Francis Kelsey, who was the FDA medical reviewer who got the thalidomide application in 1960. She was interesting to me. You know, she stayed working at the FDA through her 90s. She had had this spectacular moment of fame in 1962. She gets an award from Kennedy. You know, she's on magazine covers and on radio and TV for being the person who purportedly saves the United States from a thalidomide catastrophe on par with what happened around the world. You know, she had an MD. She got one of the first PhDs in pharmacology in the country. And here she's at the FDA in her first few weeks and this stack of papers lands on her desk. And she just happens to be so smart and, you know, so thorough in her work that she actually becomes the only person in the world to refuse to green light thalidomide to go on the market. And she does this for a year and a half, battling the drug company, Maryland Cincinnati, that was very eager to get it on the market. So she was the hero that I wanted to write about. And I thought that's the story I was going to tell. And then what very quickly happened, and as you mentioned, the story that has come down since this celebration in 1962 of our great American heroine who kept the drug off the market is that only nine American babies were harmed by thalidomide that was distributed you know, from companies in the United States. And in fact, when I eventually looked at the records, I realized three of those babies had were either stillborn or died shortly after birth. So there were supposed to be six possibly living victims of thalidomide in the United States. About a year into my research, just in a late night Googling session, you know, you get into one of these projects and you sort of never know what's going to pop up. And I find a very strange blog post by a woman in Minneapolis, and she is trying to raise funds to go meet other American thalidomide survivors in Atlanta. And I'm thinking, this is what? Who, who, who's meeting? Who are these people, right? So I reach out to her, and this becomes a huge dramatic turn in the entire story for me. She is part of a pending lawsuit. She's connected with some of the other plaintiffs, and she starts telling me that there are others. And I start gathering names. I start going to meet people, and suddenly I realize that this number that everybody has taken at face value for decades is completely wrong. And at that point in the story, I thought there were dozens. Right now, I think there are probably at least 100 living victims, and there were probably double that in terms of victims who did not make it. So it was supposed to be a victory story, and it just became a lot more complicated. Much more complicated. And to give some quantitative significance here, as you say on page 307, quote, by 1962, thalidomide was thought to have damaged approximately 10,000 babies in West Germany alone about half dying shortly after birth. Since that time, estimates for the drug's worldwide victims have risen as high as 150,000, accounting for unreported miscarriages and internal organ damage, not as initially recognized as thalidomide damage, end quote. 
Listeners should know this was a German-developed drug by a major drug company, which we'll talk about shortly. It was promoted as a sedative without side effects. A sedative without side effects. And it was more widely used in places like England, Italy, and around the world. These pills just were sent everywhere, and it never got FDA approval. So tell us the rigor that you went through, because the best investigative reporters in America didn't uncover this story until you put it together in a book, because it took unbelievable energy, curiosity, travel, interviewing the survivors, going to their homes. And the most recent development, which was really incredible that it didn't get national TV and radio coverage was the gathering for the first time of thalidomide victims in San Diego. Now, please, for our listeners, describe what thalidomide did to these infants. Mm -hmm. So thalidomide causes a lot of damage if taken within the first trimester of pregnancy. It's the first presentation that people noticed in Germany, as you said, where the drug was developed, so it was on the market there earlier and more widely is a condition called phocomelia, which is basically, it harms the development of the arms and legs. And phocomelia also is referred to as seal limbs. So you get sort of truncated limbs, you'll have, you had babies born and it would almost look like their hands were sort of sprouting out of their shoulders. They were missing forearms, upper arms, and really depending on exactly the moment where the pregnant mother took the drug. It's a condition that is so rare that most obstetricians will never see a single case in their entire practicing lives. So you can imagine, of course, once the drug goes on the market, you have obstetricians really around the world in this strange circumstance where there are hospitals and one baby, another baby, another baby, these babies are born and their limbs are damaged in a very particular way. So that is sort of what the drug does. What's interesting about the research for this story and the sort of how I was very surprised to be looking through materials that were so at odds with what had been reported. And in many ways, this became, to me, a story about what can happen when the media sort of accepts at face value a certain spin on the story. The, the FDA was very dependent initially on what the drug firms were telling it, and then the press was depending on what the FDA was telling it, and then everybody sort of moved on. It was also a happy story that people wanted to believe, right? We were the sort of the one wonderful country that had stopped this drug. The paper trail of where the story was, was sort of spread out around the country in a lot of archives of some of the people who had been working at the time and were very suspicious of these drug firms and were trying to record what they were finding. Frances Kelsey, for example, you know, she's been reported for years as having stopped the drug. But when you actually look at her paperwork in the Library of Congress and her personal archives in the FDA, what you see is that she was talking to hospitals in Cincinnati where they would say, oh yeah, we did have six focomelic babies born. And yes, there was a doctor here who was you know, one of the doctors that the drug firm was, you know, sending the thalidomide to for clinical trials, but those were not the women who got the drug, right? I mean, these, these bizarre cases of denial that seem so statistically implausible. 
but there's not a lot, you know, everyone's sort of working on the honor system. If the doctors say they weren't giving it out, if the hospital says these women with these babies didn't get that drug, everybody sort of walked away from it. And what was heartbreaking to me in this story was that there were these individuals that had spent their lives deeply suspicious that they were in fact connected to this drug and many of them, their own doctors. So these are people with often very typical thalidomide injuries. They were able to grow up and, you know, by the time Google was around, look at pictures of thalidomide victims in Germany and think to themselves, well, that's odd. I look an awful lot like that. My injuries are very similar. And yet they would visit doctors in the United States who would tell them that their injuries could not possibly be from thalidomide because the drug was never available here. And you get this weird space where these words become very important, available, well, commercially available, no one bought it, but it was widely available. And so people are sort of lost in the language that the drug firm at the time stood behind. They kept saying the drug was never commercially available. The drug was never commercially distributed. And all they mean is no one paid a cent for it. It didn't mean that the drug wasn't widely available. Okay, let's talk about another framework here. And it's from page 334 in your book, Quill. To this day, the United States remains the world's sole developed nation to refuse support to a single thalidomide victim. Canada, Britain, Spain, Ireland, Germany, Sweden, Denmark, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Italy, every other country where the drug was distributed has subsidized survivors' care costs. The U.S. government absolved Merrill, the drug company, of any criminal accountability and essentially dodges any responsibility of its own on a technicality. That is, the millions of offending tablets were given out for free, not sold, end quote. Just to be clear, this drug attacked pregnant women's fetuses. There's no evidence yet that it harmed people who took it who were not pregnant. Is that correct? Well, there was actually another side effect, and this becomes actually another piece of what I would call sort of FDA irresponsibility, which is that the drug also causes a condition called peripheral neuritis. This was the first thing that actually came to the attention of doctors in Germany were patients, a lot of elderly patients who were taking thalidomide long-term started to have very painful tingling in their extremities, in their feet and hands. And in fact, in Germany, where there was a trial held against Grunenthal, the company that first patented and started to license the drug around the world, that trial also represented victims of peripheral neuritis. Of one of the many ways I take issue with how this situation was handled by the FDA when the press broke in 1962 that thalidomide caused birth defects, which is absolutely true, they also had information that if taken long-term, it would cause this other very painful condition. And that never reaches the media here whatsoever. So in addition to the babies who were born from women who got it, I would posit that there were you know, several thousand people who were taking the drug on these sloppy trials long-term who potentially suffered these nerve conditions and were never told that it could have been related to this drug. Let's talk about the drug companies themselves, the German company and the major distributor in, in England, the distillers company that produces Johnny Walker and Dewar's and other alcoholic beverages. They first offered totally measly settlements. In one case, they offered a few hundred dollars Describe what led to their escalation of offers. Right. So not only were the offers paltry, but in fact, the German company Grunenthal, which still exists, and Tramadol is one of their big current money makers. They're still a pharmaceutical firm in operation. 
when they were brought to trial in Germany, it wasn't that they were just refusing to sort of, you know, pony up and pay survivors. They had a theory that thalidomide didn't cause these birth defects, or one of the most interesting storylines they presented was that thalidomide had saved babies who were already damaged, and it had simply allowed babies that were not going to survive to be born, right? That was something that was actually brought into court. So you can imagine, Ralph, with that as their starting point, you know, they were very resistant to take financial responsibility. That case in Germany, eventually, the case ends without a verdict. There's a negotiated pile of money that goes to the families. In the United Kingdom, you had journalists. The Sunday Times of London was essential in bringing to light what had happened. The drug was widely distributed for sale in England and Australia. And you have the media there really taking it upon themselves to try to put pressure on distillers to give enough money to these families to support the very specific and very challenging care costs of raising children who might need wheelchairs for their entire lives, need accessibility modifications in all ways. None of this happened. I mean, you know, there was no, oh gosh, we're sorry, let's take responsibility. Every cent that has been surrendered along the way from these drug firms has been a long battle for survivors and their families. And it has often, you know, not just enlisted the courts, it has enlisted the press. I know you were very passionate when this was playing out in the United Kingdom and the distillers company, people were really trying to hold them to task and say, you have to help these kids. You were threatening a boycott of all those products and and really trying to generate as much pressure on those firms as possible. None of the families that have received any kind of settlements from the drug firms. You know, these victims and survivors are now, you know, approximately 60 years old. They're aging at an accelerated rate. Their bodies, they've, you know, been very smart and creative and deft at figuring out how to manage life with differently shaped limbs. That puts a lot of wear and tear on the body, on the joints, when you start using your limbs in ways that they weren't sort of built to be used. And they need a lot of help and they haven't received that. And specifically in the United States, Because the story here, most of those victims, those mothers were never told that they got thalidomide. They were never told after the fact by the doctors, I will say, it did not shock me in researching this story, Ralph, that the pharmaceutical firms operated with the sort of focus on profit and that allowed for cutting quarters. What what really did shock me in my research was realizing that the doctors uniformly gaslit these patients. And it was stunning to me that you didn't have any of these physicians who had given the drug to pregnant women who realized, oh my God, you know, we now know what thalidomide does. They never told these women that's what caused your child's birth defect. The, you know, this was an act of God. They, they stepped away from it. Well, going back to England, we have to give credit where credit is due. There was a media blackout on what was going on with thalidomide and distillers in England until Harold Evans the editor of the Sunday Times, broke the story. And Dillers immediately went to court to try to block him from writing other stories, exposing the whole thing. But once he wrote those stories, it became more and more easier for the media to start reporting it. And when Dillers made their first offer, as I recall, to the thalidomide victims and their families, it was about 30-some thousand dollars. 
in the early 70s. And David Mason, who was the father of Louise, a thalidomide survivor who just passed away recently, David Mason organized the families like I've never seen before. I mean, he was a real dynamo. And he contacted us and we said, come on over. We'll have a press conference and say that if distillers didn't up their offer very, very substantially, we'd call for a boycott of its whiskeys, all of which had popular brand names. So that went off quite well. The media covered it. Mason continued the pressure, and they increased their offer maybe by tenfold or so, as I recall. But, you know, that was for a lifetime of care, Jennifer. Right. And the money ran out. So the families and the thalidomide victims continued to pressure the German drug company distillers. They were buoyed a few years ago by a litigation victory in Australia by tort lawyers. So they're still struggling to pay for their expenses. And David Mason is now in his 90s. And these are real heroics. Well, now there's been a long-standing litigation by a, a leading tort firm in Seattle, Washington State, representing a number of the thalidomide survivors. And this has been a torturous path for the law firm as well as for the survivors. Give us a capsule of when this started and how far it's gone and what the present status is. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned this case in Australia recently, and the Australian case was a big win for survivors. And it started to, it was a win for survivors and it began to recognize people in Australia who had not been previously considered thalidomide survivors. The awareness of how many types of injuries the drug can cause had expanded. There were a lot of new documents discovered by the UK Thalidomide Trust that cast even more suspicion and doubt on the behavior of Grunenthal. So it was a great victory in Australia. And that became of interest to an American firm here, Hoggins Berman. They began looking for American thalidomide survivors. By 2011, they gather about 50 names and they file a case in a Philadelphia court. This whole case hinges, and it's very interesting, on our statute or concept of statute of limitations, which generally exists to make sure that victims themselves have to behave with some, I guess, responsibility. And the idea is you're allowed a reasonable amount of time to do your research, figure out what happened to you and, and ask for sort of civil compensation or justice. The story of the U.S. survivors just does not fit in any box that has pre-existed about the, the notion of statute of limitations, right? These are people who were injured before they were born, right? Their parents were not given information as to what happened to them. They grow up basically hearing this story that thalidomide never harmed people in the U.S., right? Their doctors tell them their injuries can't be thalidomide related. And it takes them decades to piece together the story. This case lands in a court and it's kind of a head scratcher because what do you do, right? And, you know, to circle back, the amount of research that I had to do to be able to detail where the misinformation started, why it was so hard for these individuals to piece together their story, that all sort of was dug into and surfaced for the book, which was just published. This is not something that they had walking into this court case. Now, the, the law firm did a lot of research on their, on their own, of course, but this case has been stalled, right? There's been what is just 
uniformly described as sort of strange inaction, right? Some of the individual cases were dismissed because those survivors, some record was discovered of them naming thalidomide as the likely cause of their injuries prior to filing the case, and they were dismissed for that. But there's still a significant number of cases sitting in this court. And the real question is, what's going to happen, right? And how do we address the statute of limitations when you have to account for misinformation on the part of doctors, misinformation on the part of the government, misinformation on the part of the media, and add to that, I think, discrepancies in class and education that really play into the story where you start to understand why a very small number of American victims had the wherewithal to figure out what had happened and bring this to court and why the majority of them, right? If you look at the numbers, I would say the majority of victims and survivors of this drug did not piece it together, did not know they had a right to take legal action. And so what is reasonable? We're talking with Jennifer Vanderbess, author of the book, Just Out, Wonder Drug, The Secret History of Thalidomide in America and Its Hidden Victims. Why don't you tell us just briefly the tactics that the corporate lawyers have been using on behalf of their drug company clients against the tort firm and its clients? Okay, so my favorite exhibit in the court case were the defendant's list of media items and articles that they presented you know, to the judge that was supposed to make the case on their behalf that it was so widely known that thalidomide was distributed, right? That these cases should be kicked out. Again, that these individuals and their families just did not do their due diligence. And it sort of looks a little impressive when you glance at it, but if you take the time and you actually look at each item, right? And again, this is all very time consuming, but this whole story is about smoke and mirrors and sound bites and people saying, oh, it was only here in small clinical trials and oh, it only happened this way. And you just, you just have to pull back the curtain and dig a little bit and you start to realize, well, if you read that article, no, it was like on page B27 and the last paragraph says that there were a small number of clinical trials. And by the way, most of the American victims the clinical trial doctors gave it to their colleagues who gave it to their colleagues, right? They were not in clinical trials. They were just women who walked into their doctor and were handed an envelope of pills. Even if they had seen that page B27 bottom paragraph that said, oh, this drug was here administered in clinical trials, would they reasonably have made the connection that they were participants in that clinical trial when their doctor never said a thing about it? Absolutely not, right? So, right, the tactics are... Their number one tactic is to just not even argue the merits of the case, but get them dismissed on the basis that all these people should have known. And I would say, you know, six years of my life in this book is really about an examination of how incredibly reasonable and understandable it is that these individuals did not know. They were not given the information and our government was quite complicit. I mean, we had, Ralph, families of victims calling the FDA and saying, can you give me the names of the doctors who were distributing it? You know, my nephew in Texas has these injuries. And the FDA that knows the drug was handed from doctor to doctor, they have this information, it's all documented. They don't tell the families, the mother's doctor might not be on this list and he might've given out thalidomide. They don't say that, they don't share that information. They just say, he's not on this list, thank you very much, have a nice day. So they get the door slammed in their face at every turn. And obviously the drug firms from day one worked very hard. If you look at the paperwork of the Merrill company in the United States and the way that they spun the story, 
sadly, a lot of the press took their version at face value. And that's what got reported. That's what the FDA believed for a while. And by the time the FDA stopped believing them, and actually, I mean, an interesting piece of the story is that about a year after this news breaks, the FDA has realized, uh-oh, actually, this firm behaved criminally. Like, we want to bring criminal charges. They take it to the Justice Department. And it's sort of the media has lost interest at that point. The Justice Department does this insane thing, which sadly, of all the archives and files I went to, I, I went to the National Archives in tears trying to get this last file released because I thought there might be information as to why the Justice Department refused to bring charges. They said there's one letter that exists and they say there was only one American victim of the drug, which isn't even in sync with what the FDA that was doing the investigation reported. It's down to one. No information beyond that as to why the Justice Department said one. They decide there's really no victim tally whatsoever. So why even discuss criminal charges? And that's kind of the end of it. Well, you know, it's amazing how the invocation of tort law by victims, the law of wrongful injury, is so dependent on the media. Look at all the media that sexual harassment cases have received recently. Not sexual assault, just sexual harassment, settling for millions of dollars. And look what Fox has paid out. And for a toxic workplace, you know, bad words being used, misogynistic behavior, they just paid $13 million to one of the plaintiffs in settlement. And yet these solidomide victims are, you know, not being covered adequately in the media. And in fact, their plight would not have been focused on much at all, other than the great journalist Morton Mintz of the Washington Post, who broke the Francis Kelsey denial of FDA approval of thalidomide in the early 1960s. And you located Morton Mintz when he was 95 in Washington, yes. D.C. He's now 101. Tell mm-hmm. us about that search for his documents in his basement. Yes. I, I can't remember if I found his email or his phone number, but I found contact information and I just cold called him. I mean, a lot of the research for this book was, you know, randomly reaching out to people and then pleading my case. He living in DC, I said, look, I'm working on a project about Francis Kelsey and thalidomide. I didn't know the full scope of the project when I first spoke to him, but I said, can I come down and speak to you? He is, as you know, really one of the great investigative reporters of all time and has always had a reputation for being unafraid of going after (laughs) really big bad guys. And so he sort of lit up at the prospect that there might be sort of something new reviving this story. He was, you know, as he tells it, and and I met with him many times, and yes, what was magical about it, he too was someone who had always been referenced you know, in about three sentences of connection to the story, he opened up his home, his photo albums, his musty basement full of boxes of papers of all his work and just gave me free permission to prowl, which was thrilling. And I was able to, you know, locate a lot of extra, you know, papers that were connected to the story through that. You know, what was interesting about his role at the Washington Post is that he did not cover science and healthcare. This was not supposed to be his beat. He had such a reputation at the paper of being someone who got really riled up about injustice. And certain kinds of stories would just set him on fire with a passion to go after him. And so his editor apparently held it from the reporter who traditionally should have covered this story for a few days until that guy went on vacation to give Mintz (laughs) the tip to dive in. And of course, he was absolutely the right person. What's interesting about him in that story, to back up even further, you know, 
the media's role in this story, you know, the media has a tremendous amount of power in deciding what stories are important and which victims matter. You know, before Mintz, there was an American reporter named Eleanor Kameth, who was a foreign correspondent in Germany. She was living in Germany when news broke of Thalidomide's dangers, and that was in November of 1961. She realizes this is a massive story. She knocks on the door of every foreign correspondent she knows socially in Germany to get them to cover the story. And she is rebuffed, okay? Major papers could have had this story. You know, by December 1961, this news could have been in, widely in the United States. The idea that this drug that was purportedly, you know, harming or targeting women and babies did not seem for whatever reason to rise to the occasion of the immediate attention it deserved. We're still in that situation, as you mentioned. I mean, we have American thalidomide survivors. This is huge news that they've been, the, the story has been wrong, right? This sort of success story was wrong. Here they are, they're fighting for justice. And how do you get the media to decide that they matter, right? That these individuals are worth reporting on. It's worth covering the story to the end. It's a story that matters to everybody, I would say, because the question of statute of limitations, I don't think ends with thalidomide. This is a much broader question that everybody should be concerned about, where our science is moving quickly, our drugs are moving quickly, a lot of things are moving very quickly. And this idea that you have a very small window of time to sort of piece things, things together, especially when it comes to children, could be problematic in a lot of other ways. I think that's something that their story represents more broadly that we have to look at societally. Well, you know, I guess some of our listeners want to know the answer to this question. The German company that developed it, Grunthal, is continually criticized within the thalidomide community. Quoting from your book, victims now in their early 60s and grappling with prematurely aging bodies speak of a drug company that got away with murder. To this day, the Wirtz family still helms Grunthal. The son of Hermann Wirtz, Dr. Michael Wirtz, serves as the firm's chief executive, and the Wirtz's have maintained stunning wealth and political influence in Germany despite their well-documented wrongdoing and a sizable body count from their products, end quote. But they did finally try their version of an apology. Tell us about that, and when did it occur? Right, so there's been continuous pressure on Grunenthal, which stunningly was able to maintain operating as a pharmaceutical firm generating billions of dollars a year, not even changing its name from the name of the company that created thalidomide. The pressure, there have been protests, there have been letters, there has you know, been a, a decent persistent media shaming overseas. In 2012, they decide that it's probably not a great idea in this new age of reputations and media to keep cold shouldering and saying nothing. So they issue an apology. And it's not an admission of guilt or wrongdoing. It's just, it's an, almost an apology for sort of not having said anything for 50 to 60 years on the matter. And the response of the survivors worldwide was, you know, we don't need words. What we need is support for the physical damage that was caused. It was not enough. It was surprising to me that this firm could continue operating under the same name. The American companies have been gobbled up by larger companies. Marion Merrill Dow is now Sanofi. You know, SmithKline French is GlaxoSmithKline. There have been some name changes that you could sort of 
plausibly say the reputations could be shifted or morphed around where people don't make the association. Grunenthal, as I said, is a massively currently profitable company that has not accepted any responsibility for any wrongdoing in this story. I will say personally, I went to visit my mother in assisted living recently and saw a bottle of Tramadol, which is a Grunenthal product on her nightstand and and just said, mom, (laughs) that's, that's a Grunenthal drug. I just, you know, I had a very visceral reaction to being disturbed by this company's history and disturbed by their refusal to take any more responsibility financially for what uh, what the drug thalidomide did internationally and the number of deaths and injuries that were caused by it. The larger significance of the thalidomide story, Jennifer, is obvious to others who've studied the drug companies, is they're pouring out these new drugs. In many countries, they don't really have even the level of regulation that we have with the FDA, modest as it is. And these drugs are often for lifestyle purposes. They're not drugs designed for serious ailments, and they're passed out free, clinical trials all over, people trust their physicians, and it's only a matter of time when we're going to see a widespread drug much more devastating than thalidomide. And, and basically, before it's discovered in terms of the connection between the drug and the physical damage, hundreds of thousands or millions of people or children could be affected. So this book by Jennifer Vanderbess called Wonder Drug, The Secret History of Thalidomide in America and Its Hidden Victims is a clarion call for all of us. And so when you hear about people who are very, very suspect of pharmaceuticals and they don't have adequate evidence to further their suspicion, just remember one thing. If there's too much complacency, if there's too much faith in the FDA, and the drug companies, they're going to abuse it. They're going to lower their safeguards. They're not going to have adequate clinical trials. They're not going to reveal the data publicly, even to the government. But in your book, you do properly focus on breaking the story open in the United States. I want you to describe for our listeners the life of Jean, a thalidomide survivor, in your book before you described the meeting in San Diego of thalidomide survivors and the incredible spirit and the zest for life that they have experienced through their own willpower and the support of their families and relatives. Give a biographical sketch of Jean. And listeners, when you hear this, you can't but be humbled. So I met Jean in 2018. And she intrigued me because there was something very interesting in this list I was accumulating of thalidomide survivors around the country. She was born in Cincinnati, which is where the Merrill Company was headquartered. She was born in August of 1962, which is actually after Life magazine did a whole expose on thalidomide. And she had somehow lived the majority of her life being told that she couldn't possibly be a thalidomide survivor. So Jean's mother goes into the Jewish hospital in Cincinnati in August of 1962. You know, she's an excited, expectant mother. They've got everything set up at home. The baby's born and the doctors act very strange. They immediately tell Jean's mother and father that their baby girl is missing arms and legs and they should put her in foster care. This is a complete shock to the couple. They take the doctor's advice. They don't know what else to do. They don't see Jean. 
She's sent off to foster care for a year, but the dad goes back home and he's very curious and he decides he wants to sneak visits, right? He's, he's not able to just completely disconnect. And he starts visiting the foster home and realizing, yes, she has a condition, her limbs are truncated, but she's adorable and she seems to be thriving. And he eventually tells his wife that their baby actually seems to be okay. And they make a decision to go back and get her out of foster care and bring her home. That is the sort of start of Jean's life, right? This sort of prognosis of doom. She's not going to live, give her up. And Jean just really thrives. She's a very precocious child. She's a precocious teenager. She's mainstreamed. You know, the family moves from Cincinnati to the East Coast. She ends up at a mainstream public school. She sees some kids with spina bifida who are racing cars, and she decides she wants to, you know, learn to drive. At every turn, she looks, you know, for, you know, what's the thing that she can do rather than the thing that she can't do. She eventually gets prostheses for her legs. So she's able to walk. She goes to college. You know, she's at university. She's able to walk across the campus. She very quickly learns that she has a flair for art. So Jean studies art at the Rochester Institute of Technology, graduates summa cum laude. She's an incredibly talented artist who goes on to launch a career in graphic design. She's a super talented artist and designer, and she's able, you know, with her truncated arms and the way that her fingers are organized, she, she finds her own way to create art, and it's it's pretty stunning. So she leads a very sort of thriving life. She gets married. She ends up having four children, and she's busy. I mean, she would describe herself as sort of, you know, a busy working mother, much more so than as a victim, a busy working mother who sort of went about trying to lead her life and build the best life she could without really examining or thinking about what had caused her injuries. She gets involved in this sort of child amputees network to become a volunteer. And that's when she starts seeing pictures online of thalidomide victims and realizing that she looks a lot like them. And that leads her on this journey to start connecting herself with the drug thalidomide and these strange pills that her mother was given. Jean had never met another thalidomide survivor, right? She hadn't thought of herself as one. She had no community for the bulk of her life with anyone who had similar injuries. When I met her in 2018 for the book, I flew to her home. I had dinner with her, her husband and her kids. And I said, listen, there are a lot of you guys. And I've just been to visit two women born in the same hospital and they're going to be having a meeting in San Diego. And I really think you should come. You know, I'm going to be there. I think this would be a pivot point for you. She agrees. And so she flies in 2019. She'd never been to California before. She flies with her daughter, Sarah. Sarah helps her on the plane and gets her to the airport and they get to the hotel. And this is just a life-changing moment for her to roll into, you know, a hotel lobby filled with people who have the same origin story, who look like her, who have the same practical challenges throughout their day with her. And it's this incredibly, I try to describe it in the book because one can get caught up thinking about the physical conditions of all of these amazing people. And in reality, you know, I would describe this as a sort of wild hotel conference. <laughs> you know, people were having a great time, really exuberant at this newfound community and just enjoying each other's company so much and realizing that they could turn a corner and start organizing and doing something and asking for something and for help with each other collaboratively. 
These are people who do not want to be considered victims, very much, you know, prefer the word survivor and it's understandable because when you, you know, Jean is one of many examples of people who have overcome a lot of physically challenging obstacles to lead, you know, an incredibly rich life. And we must remember that these are the survivors who prevailed over enormous odds. And there are a lot of thalidomide victims never made it. Yes. Many of them died at birth or after a few months, or they went through hell trying to accommodate to a world that discriminated against them in so many ways and was so unhelpful. When she was a youngster, pre-tween, tween, teenager, her peer group must have given her some pretty awful experiences, staring at her, backing away, snide comments. How did she handle all that? Right. So Jean has, like many of the survivors, you know, lived a life of having to accept that when people see her for the first time, one of the first things they notice is that her limbs are differently shaped. And obviously, the most traumatic period for all of the survivors was childhood, right? Kids are truly the worst (laughs) at knowing how to not stare, navigate, you know, comment. Jean has such a gregarious, sunny personality It's very hard, really within 10 seconds of speaking to her, you become much more aware of her spirit, her sense of humor, you know, her wit, her kindness. And I think that's really the survival skill that got her through childhood. Jean is a very popular person, right? I think she was a very popular kid. She just has a fantastic personality and makes people gravitate towards her. And, you know, Jean and all the survivors have talked about that particular pain of being looked at in ways. And I will say that one of the things that has happened now, they didn't just have differently shaped bodies. They had no story to explain it. So they couldn't even tell staring kids, oh, I'm a thalidomide victim. I'm this way because, I mean, sometimes you can just end a conversation and move forward with an answer. They didn't have a factual answer. There was this big question mark. What happened to you? I don't know, right? One of the many reasons that this sort of new moment for them is so powerful and validating is having answers. And they're very proud of the book. They're sharing it with their families. I mean, people that they grew up with, people in their social circles, to have an answer that kind of redirects the conversation to, I guess, more of, you know, what you're asking about is, oh, tell, you know, tell us about your life rather than your condition. We can move past the condition and the sort of why it happened and get on to talking about people like Jean for their full personalities and, you know, professional accomplishments and family accomplishments and the sort of rich lives they've led. I was struck by, you know, this book, like I said, it, it tackles a lot of injustice and frustrating material. But for me, it was the stories of people like Jean Grover and the inspiration of people like Jean and what they've been able to do with their lives, given the situation in which they started. It is so moving and transporting to see that even in this sort of dark episode, the best of the human spirit, I think, (laughs) came through. David? Circling back to American victims not knowing their legal remedies, which countries, courts, and governments were the most responsive to the needs of the victims and which were the least responsive? How does America stack up against, say, Australia, Germany, or Great Britain? Well, United States is hands down the worst. Second to that, I think, might be Malta, which just compensated victims. And as it turns out, that's specific, you know, related to the fact that they actually kept the drug on the market, I believe, through 1965. Quite a long period of time, thalidomide was available there. 
long after the drug's dangers were known. The United States has simply, because the story in the United States is that no one was harmed, that's the sort of, well, we don't have to do, if there are no victims, who are you compensating, right? I mean, it's a, it's a really outside the box story in terms of worldwide thalidomide justice, because if there's supposed to be, you know, essentially zero people who were harmed, there's no conversation about how to help them. So this new information, which is that, wait a second, no, we've, we've got scores of people who are harmed. The conversation's just starting. Now, the U.S. Lidomide survivors are going in September. I'll be there with my kids, with them, to visit Congress and to try to start this conversation to really say, what can the U.S. government do now to make sure that these people who are aging and in need get some kind of support? Because the courts are boxing them out. The normal, you know, normal tort law, normal, you know, civil court proceedings, they've been at this for over a decade and nothing has happened. You know, as though the courts don't even know what to make of this story. By the way, was thalidomide, for, did you mention that it was for morning sickness and nausea? Was that the original? That was, that was one of its uses. I mean, I, one of the also stories that have been passed out was that thalidomide was a morning sickness drug. It was actually mostly a hypnotic and sedative, right? Most people who took it were taking it as some kind of chill pill relaxant. Morning sickness was one of the many uses it was given out for. So in fact, what you have are women who will adamantly say, you know, I couldn't have been given thalidomide because I never had morning sickness. Well, but they were anxious during pregnancy. And so their doctor gave them something for anxiety. And it turns out, right, that was thalidomide. Anna? Thank you, Jennifer. That actually leads perfectly into my question. It didn't seem like it did anything. Why were people so obsessed with trying to make thalidomide happen? I mean, the coming out of the World War II, pharmaceuticals just started booming as an industry. And the idea that medicine was just for medical ailments was sort of a thing of the past, right? There was a new appetite for pills that could cap you up, calm you down, barbiturates become this massive market of relaxants, but they have a huge problem, which is that you can overdose on them. So it's a sort of wonderfully calming drug that people are very fond of, but everybody knows it's dangerous. You know, anyone could take too many by accident or on purpose, right? So when thalidomide comes around and possibly the one selling point you could maybe still make about thalidomide is as you cannot OD on it. It doesn't mean it works for anything. It's just, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, like consuming, I don't know, bulk flour or something. It's not going to, you know, it's not going to kill you. But what they did in the testing was find that unlike barbiturates, you could give megadoses to animals, you could give megadoses to humans, and no one was going to die. So this becomes a massive marketing angle. And at the time, right, I mean, the, the marketing of pharmaceuticals is taking off, and they know that people want these drugs to relax. And there's a, a robust market for a drug that isn't related to a medical condition because medical conditions sort of circumscribe your target audience, right? But everybody might need to sleep. Everybody might need to relax. So they look at these things as sort of possible, you know, take it like vitamins, take it like aspirin. They're going to be mega earners. And in fact, thalidomide was when it goes on the market in Germany. I mean, it's massively, massively profitable and popular. Whether that's because it was wildly effective or people just believed it to be, the data on its ability to actually help people sleep or do what it was supposed to do is questionable. A lot of the experiments did not show that it had this particular hypnotic or sedative effect, but it didn't necessarily need to. People were willing to sort of, you know, buy these things and trust in all ways, trust its safety, trust, you know, what it was supposed to be effective for. And, you know, as Ralph mentioned, 
at that point in time, you didn't have to prove a drug was effective for anything to bring it to market. That actually changes in 1962 after thalidomide. It was an issue that was people were talking about when they were looking at drugs. I mean, people were selling, you know, bottled water and calling it a cancer cure. I mean, the the degree to which things were being sold that were so disconnected from the medical claims that we're making were intense. But when thalidomide becomes this massive sort of, you know, throws back the veil on how dangerous drugs can be, they also at the same time say, well, we don't just want to test for safety, but we want to make sure that if anyone's putting anything in their bodies for a purpose, that it actually accomplishes that goal. But it was going to be, you know, the biggest seller for all these firms that were licensing it. Before we close, we have to bring the thalidomide story up to date. It's coming back for other purposes like Mm -hmm. cancer. Can you describe that briefly? Is this happening in the U.S. and other countries? And are there approvals by the government? Yes. So thalidomide and a derivative of thalidomide is now, after many decades, approved by the FDA. It started out, interestingly, doctors as early as the 60s realized that the thing that causes limbs not to grow in utero is sort of the same mechanism by which you could stop the growth of tumors and and leprosy lesions. So the drug undergoes sort of, you know, a few decades of people sort of saying, well, okay, we don't want to use it for that, but does it have another application? They discover that it does. And what's very interesting about the current story of thalidomide, as far as I know, it is effective in its treatments for multiple myeloma. I have no evidence to suggest that that's not true, although it's no longer considered effective for leprosy. However, and it has been given for lots of off, you know, the off-label use of the current derivatives of thalidomide are its own story. But it was an old drug and it was very hard to figure out how to patent it and thus how to how to have any one drug firm make it really profitable, right? So what's interesting is that Celgene, which decides to bring it to the FDA for approval, patents its sort of safety system, right? The drug itself becomes protected by, I think, a dozen plus patents that involve making sure pregnant women take pregnancy tests. And it gets the exclusive right to sell this sort of old drug that was once as cheap as aspirin and eventually has it on the market. I think it's ballpark, you know, $10,000 a month to treat multiple myeloma patients because they have a patent on it. And they just started some negotiations to allow generics, but those are very constricted in terms of how much time the generics can be available. Suffice it to say that that the new version of thalidomide, the cheap pill that you once bought like an aspirin is now wildly expensive and being used for something entirely different. And I will say the FDA has expressed lots of concerns with the off-label use and Congress has expressed issues with the pricing. But we're out of time. We have been speaking with Jennifer Vanderbess, the author of the new book, by Random House, Wonder Drug, The Secret History of Thalidomide in America and Its Hidden Victims. Thank you very much, Jennifer, and good luck on your future media interviews. And we hope to have you back on a virtual event at the American Museum of Tort Law, open to anybody in the world to participate in. Thank you. Thank you, Ralph. It's been great to be here. We've been speaking with Jennifer Vanderbess. We will link to her book, Wonder Drug, at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Now, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, July 28, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Corporate crime enforcement is down under the Biden Justice Department, with fewer major corporate crime cases being brought in the first two years of the Biden administration 
than during the first two years of the Trump administration. Major corporate crime cases settled with deferred non-prosecution agreements and declinations with disgorgement were down from 56 under President Trump to 31 under President Biden. Major corporate crime cases that resulted in guilty pleas or verdicts were down from 33 under Trump to 24 under Biden. That's according to a new analysis of the violation tracker corporate crime database for the Capitol Hill citizen. Other groups that track corporate crime concurred with the Capitol citizen's analysis that corporate crime prosecutions are down under Biden. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. That's our show. I want to thank our guest again, Jennifer Vanderbest. For those of you listening on the radio, we're going to cut out now for you podcast listeners. Stay tuned for some bonus material we call the wrap-up. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to Nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to CorporateCrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen. It's out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to capitolhillcitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at ralphnaderradiowire.com. Post a comment or question on this week's episode. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreaders, Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producers, Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager, Stephen Went. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we'll welcome sociologist Sherry Turkle to discuss the internet and children. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. And remember, the new edition of Capital Citizen is out. Go to CapitalCitizen.com to get a copy. First class mail. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to The Wrap-Up, where we continue our conversation with Jennifer Vanderbess with Steve asking a question. Well, we'd like to extend your story with a virtual event in the coming months at the American Museum of Tort Law, tortmuseum.org is the website, so that you can make the narrative of the story so compelling to the live audience that we should get a very good feedback from them. Are you game for that? I'd be game for that. Everything and anything to get the story out there, Ralph. <laughs> because being a virtual live event, there'll be people from all over the world logging in and participating. So with that being said, let's have a few inputs from Steve, David, and Hannah. Steve, you want to start? Jennifer, you know, we live in an age now of, say, vaccine skepticism skepticism of the FDA and the CDC. What has changed, if anything, since the thalidomide scandal to now that would give us more faith in the system? Well, you know, I look at the story as proof of why we need strong regulatory agencies. I think that this is a pro-FDA, keep empowering the FDA, except that in any organization there will always be some bad actors or people who make errors. That's inevitable. I do not personally connect the story. I mean, thalidomide was a chill pill. It was not a vaccine. It had no fundamental medical purpose. And I think that 
you know, even to circle back to what Ralph was saying, I mean, thalidomide breaks and it becomes the, the horror story that allows us to empower the FDA to what it is today. Frances Kelsey spends the rest of her life improving clinical trials so we don't get another thalidomide. I think that the next thalidomide you know, it could be a pharmaceutical, it could be a, it could be a chemical. This could be an EPA story, right? I mean, I think we're we're living in a landscape where I think the lesson is we need watchdogs, we need powerful agencies. The thing that broke my heart was this is the story that proves the honor system does not work. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work for doctors. It doesn't work for drug firms. You need strict rules. You need oversight with muscle. And this is the story that proves to me, it's the sort of test case. What do you get when the FDA doesn't have the right powers? You get thalidomide, right? What do you get when you just let the pharmaceutical companies take care of it on their own? You get thalidomide, right? The reason we have not had something on the scope of thalidomide is because the FDA was, was strongly empowered after 1962. Francis Kelsey knew that there were 37 doctors testing thalidomide. There were well over 2000 handing it out. The FDA just wasn't given the information the law did not require the drug firm to give that information, right? That's how so much of this slips through the cracks. Well, on that point, you know, let's remember, as Dr. Sidney Wolf, the chief citizen watchdog of the FDA for decades, has pointed out, the off-label uses, the misleading advertising has led to a lot of deaths by the drugs peddled from the large drug companies. An example is Pfizer. Pfizer sold a drug called Viox which led to the deaths of 40,000 people, according to Public Citizen Health Research Group. 40,000 people before it was taken off the market, and Pfizer was never criminally prosecuted. So this has been going on, not in such a ghastly, personal, visible way. Those 40,000 people died from heart attacks silently, but it has been going on, and this book is going to contribute to a much greater feedback of skepticism and evidence if the media gives adequate coverage. Have you been getting a good response so far? The book is published by Random House. That's so a big publisher. Yeah, we, we had an NPR segment. We had a nice Washington Post review. Even People Magazine actually just ran Jean's story. I mean, she's such a, a thrilling character. That's been fantastic. It's interesting, Ralph, what you said about off-label use. I feel like if we just rephrase those words to be unapproved use, right? <laughs> like it, it really sounds quite different, right? All, you know, but yes, I mean, there's a lot of questionable, dangerous behavior that is still playing out. And I do think that this story speaks powerfully to all of the, I think it speaks powerfully to the opioid crisis, right? I mean, that was, there was an FDA reviewer who, you know, fast-tracked that application and then immediately went to work for Purdue. Right. I mean, within six months, you know, case in point, case right. in point. Right. Huge, so, huge. Yeah. Op you know, opioids. I think that we absolutely have to keep asking those questions of, you know, who's motivated by what. And I think it's always a good thing for patients to ask questions. I wouldn't want to see a world where pharmaceutical firms and the FDA are sort of melded together as as groups that have similar agendas. They don't. And those organizations can be flawed in equally in different ways. But I think, like I said, my, my hope is to really, you know, make sure that we have strong FDA watchdogs, strong EPA watchdogs. We need people looking out for the very fast pace of distribution of all sorts of products 
that we just don't have enough time often. I mean, thalidomide, it would take right nine months from going to market, right, to be able to see, you know, that this side effect existed. And we've certainly had a lot of products that took six months, a year, two years, four years to sort of have some kind of longitudinal study to notice that they have problems and we need some incentive for reporting of long-term side effects. And important for listeners to know that federal law now and since the early 60s requires that all drugs be approved for both their safety and effectiveness. If they're safe but not effective, they can't be approved under the law administered by the Food and Drug Administration. If they're effective but they're not safe, they can't be approved. So people should realize there's a dual obligation here by the drug companies to provide adequate evidence to the FDA before they start peddling free pills around in so-called unofficial clinical trials without the knowledge of the patient and sometimes without the knowledge of the physician. And now it's time for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. On July 25th, the Teamsters reported that UPS caved to their demands, narrowly avoiding a massive strike. The wins in the new contract include higher wages, more jobs, ending the two-tier wage system, air conditioning in UPS trucks, part-time rewards, and drivers getting Martin Luther King Day off. The union has triumphantly declared, quote, we've changed the game, end quote. If these negotiations had fallen through, 340,000 UPS Teamsters would have gone on strike. Other employers, such as the Hollywood AMPTP, should take notes. The Intercept reports that the Sanders-led Senate Help Committee has passed an amendment to the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act, allocating $3 million to the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine to explore new options to pay for developing pharmaceuticals, specifically through public funding or, quote, innovation prizes, quote. These drugs would then enter the public domain so they could be sold as generic medications. Sanders has made the cost of prescription drugs a high priority during his chairmanship on the committee, and hopefully this effort will bear fruit. Following months of protest, CNN reports that Israel has rammed through their controversial judicial reform legislation. This law will limit the independence of the Israeli judiciary, which has been a bulwark against the most extreme right-wing factions in the country. This measure has sparked a new round of scrutiny regarding the $3.8 billion in military aid the U.S. provides to Israel annually. Progressive Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson has requested $15 million for a plan to help decarbonize 200 to 350 homes by modernizing heating and insulation for low-income Chicagoans. Gregory Pratt of the Tribune reports. One hopes to see more progressives pushing for these localized and tailored climate change plans. Anchor Brewing, a San Francisco institution, has been on a roller coaster for several years. The workers organized the plant, then it was sold to Sapporo, and now Sapporo is attempting to sell the company for parts. In response, the union is attempting to raise funds to purchase Anchor Brewing and run it as a worker-owned cooperative. More information is available at vinepair.com. In other alcohol-related news, the American Prospect reports that Total Wine, the company founded by Rep. David Trone of Maryland, who is currently seeking the open Senate seat in that state, is fighting an FTC antitrust investigation. The agency is investigating the chain for, quote, price discrimination and exclusive dealing arrangements in alcohol markets as part of a broader crackdown that's also charging Pepsi and Coke for similar anti-competitive conduct, end quote. 
Total Wine has reportedly sought to impede this investigation at every turn and have succeeded in slowing it down even as the Biden administration seeks to crack down on anti-competitive behavior. It remains to be seen whether this will become an issue in the Senate campaign. Following Rep. Jamal Bowman's boycott of Israeli President Isaac Herzog's address to Congress, Jewish Insider reports that AIPAC, among the most powerful Washington lobbies, is pushing for Westchester County Executive George Latimer to run a primary challenge against Bowman. Historically, AIPAC has been instrumental in keeping progressive voices, and their criticism of Israel, out of the halls of Congress. The German news service DW reports that Ukraine has imposed a, quote, ban on Russian language culture, such as books, music, plays, and concerts, end quote. Whatever one's opinions are on the war in Ukraine, this ban approaches dangerous territory of limiting expression for minority groups in the country and could presage more militarized crackdowns on the Russian minority in Ukraine, similar to Japanese Americans during World War II. All parties must come to the table to negotiate an immediate ceasefire and engage in high-level diplomacy. Only that can prevent this war spinning into graver and graver circumstances. Finally, on July 20th, a supermajority of workers at Grindr, the LGBTQ dating app, voted to unionize with Communication Workers of America, Perkin Kelly. This came as a response, in part, to revelations showing Grindr's new CEO had previously voiced support for anti-LGBTQ politicians on Twitter and via political donations. This vote gives a whole new meaning to the phrase hot labor summer. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we speak to sociologist Sherry Turkle to discuss the Internet and children. Until next time. Stand.